episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast. This is the second in our ongoing series of MD-PhD alumni interviews. So today I'm here with Dr. Nina Shore. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What do you do and why? Um, Currently, I'm the chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Um, And um, it's been a very... Uh, lengthy road to this particular position. I think in a nutshell, um, the reason I do what I'm doing right now is because it allows me to uh, teach and mentor at the very highest level. The people who I mentor directly are in fact themselves leaders uh, and that's very exciting to me. I learn as much as I teach. Um, It allows me to um, sit in a way at 30,000 feet and juxtapose things that people sitting in the trenches don't think to juxtapose. Um, To really sit at the interface between the clinical world and the research world, uh, I think those are the things that make this very, very exciting to me. And I think that's a really good example of the kind of, you said the interface of both of those worlds, and I think that the MD-PhD angle is invaluable to that. There's no question in my mind. I, I think that um, there are many, many people in the clinical world who are uh, master clinicians and who are outstanding diagnosticians. There are many other people who are very, very innovative uh, research people uh, who are very, very deeply entrenched in their particular piece of the research world, and I think there are many fewer of us who are uniquely positioned to juxtapose those two worlds and make one come to bear on the other, and to me that's the most exciting part of the both the training and the jobs that you're able to do with it. If you can think back to the person you were when you first entered the program, what experiences did you bring with you uh, if you felt you know, unprepared or a bit of a culture shock, or did you, what was the culture like when you first arrived there? Yeah, I think um, I was pretty well prepared for it. I had done research for many years. Uh, I Even as a high school student, I, I uh, went to Benjamin Cardozo High School in Bayside, and um, they actually had a, a biology research uh, course or program that I took for two years in high school and so really got a chance at a, at a much less sophisticated level than later on, but at least a chance to say what is it like to pose a question that nobody's ever answered before and then design a way to generate the answer um, and then design a way to understand the very unexpected results that come as a consequence of that. Um, I, uh, I was an undergraduate at Yale University and had uh, really a lot of opportunities both uh, at Yale during the school year and then in the summers between uh, school years to uh, pursue research in several different places including, uh, including Rockefeller. So I had already had a little glimpse at least of what Rockefeller was like. Um, I had many opportunities to shadow physicians, and so um, I had a pretty good idea of what it might be like um, 
to be a medical student. Um, I, I do think that, um, you know, I, I came in with perhaps the same notion that many other people have even now of, of, of being an MD-PhD, that in fact, um, you will be, you will have the unique opportunity to be considered a clinician by the clinicians and to be considered a researcher by the researchers. And to me, the most difficult thing, uh, which was really more a philosophical thing than an intellectual thing that was m the most difficult to deal with, was that often the clinicians thought of me as a researcher and the researchers mm. thought of me as a clinician. And uh, I guess that never occurred to me. I must be an eternal optimist. I always <laughs> thought that instead of being man without a country, I would have two countries that considered me a citizen. Um, and that still is sometimes difficult. Do you think that might have been a function of of the time or if you if there's been any sort of improvement or precedent for more people working in both of those worlds? I, I do think things are much better now than they were, particularly in my own field of uh, pediatric neurology. Pediatric neurology, uh, when I decided to pursue it as a career, was a very phenomenological kind of uh, medical subspecialty. Um, we really, uh, I made the decision at a time when CT scans were brand new and were so pixelated that they looked like jigsaw puzzles <laughs> um, with very large pieces mm -hmm. and MRIs had not even been thought of yet. And so the ability in an awake, behaving, living human being to visualize anything that we were dealing with, much less manipulated pharmacologically or what have you, was very much in the future. And so um, really the name of the game in neurology in general and particularly in child neurology was the description of the phenomena that one was observing in a patient. And there was very little mechanistic to even hope of uh, studying um, only because the tools had not yet been developed and uh, you know there was a part of me that listened to all of those people who said why would you go into that field there isn't anything you can do for those patients and there isn't anything you can study in the lab um, and then there was a very big part of me that won out that said, well, how exciting could it be? I mean, you could be the one to put this field on the map. You could be the one to develop and invent and uh, hone those tools, and you'll, be, you'll have a front row seat when that capability becomes available. And um, that's a decision I've never regretted. So what drew you to pediatric neurology besides the yeah. potential for, uh, I guess, the newness of it? Yeah, I, I think the, I always tell people that the neurology part of that decision was very, very much an intellectual decision. My interest in neuroscience from way before I was a student at Cornell and Rockefeller, um, a uh, really decision that was born of my fascination with the nervous system and with the fact that it put 
biology and chemistry and physics and psychology all in the same room at the same time. Um, the fact that um, the mind and the brain weren't two things, they were one thing uh, that had two or three or four facets to it. I, I had been fascinated by that for a very, very long time. And the notion that if you made even a small contribution to that field that you could change radically both the state of our knowledge and the quality of life for a large collection of people was very, very appealing to me. Um, the pediatric part was different. I, I often explain it by saying how exciting developmental neurobiology is and how exciting it is to have a, a substrate that changes so radically over time intrinsically. And I think that's true. But if I'm really honest with myself, what drove me into pediatric neurology rather than adult neurology was really a social phenomenon. I just really enjoy being with children. I enjoy um, both working with them and interacting with them. Um, I enjoy the whimsy of the way in which they look at the world, the fact that what goes into that black box is exactly the same as what happens with an adult, but what comes out is so radically different. Um, it, it's just fun, to be perfectly honest. So around the time that you were part of the tri-institutional program, it was very different. Yes. Um, wasn't the tri-institutional program. Right. So in the course of your studies, how did you whether the transitions between like the clinical work and you know lab work or thesis writing and then if you went back to clerkships after you finished that part um, I'm very interested in how sort of people make the those switches in mindset or if they yes do. Uh, you know it's interesting because I think that phenomenon was exactly the same as it is now um, a lot of extraordinarily bright and creative people worrying about something that's not going to be a problem for them <laughs> Um, so um, when I went through the program, uh, when you were a medical student, you participated in what were called biomedical seminars. Uh, they were evening events that occurred once a month in preparation for which you read a series of papers, um, uh, almost like you would for a journal club. And then we had a guest speaker who came, gave a talk, and had dinner with us and discussed the papers which often uh, he or she had authored or uh, was contributing to the same field. And the notion was while you were in medical school you at least had half a foot in the research world. And then once you went back to the laboratory, um, you had once a month um, an assignment of a patient at uh, New York Hospital that you went to see or at Sloan Kettering that you went to see and you did basically much the same thing uh, as you would do in second year in physical uh, diagnosis course um, where you would present that case to uh, an attending physician. Uh, you would get critiqued in how you presented it. You and the attending physician would go back to see the patient together and you would have some 
exam findings demonstrated to you that perhaps you didn't know how to elicit or that you missed or um, or that you looked at differently than the attending thought you should and the, the notion there was while you were in the laboratory you still had a foot in the clinic. Um, I, I think that that was helpful. I think it it allowed me not to lose my physical exam skills and history taking skills while I was in the laboratory and it allowed me to see the research light at the end of the tunnel when I was in my first two years of medical school. Um, so I, I think that um, keeping in contact and keeping conversant with both sides of 68th Street was very, very useful to me. Um, and and I, I think the most important thing really was that given how my career played out subsequently, it really prepared me extraordinarily well for um, the transitions that I make not just month to month, but during the course of a day, even now. To what extent did you feel supported by the program during those various transitions um, or just in the course of your work by the sort of wider institutional environment? Yeah, I, I felt, actually I felt like, and perhaps it was partly a function of the laboratory and the project that I was involved in, but um, on the Rockefeller side of campus, I felt like everybody there was doing the same kind of thing that I was doing. Everybody had uh, interdisciplinary studies ongoing of one sort or another. You know, there weren't traditional departments or traditional disciplinary lines. Um, the kinds of collaborations and exchanges that could never take place in a more traditional institution happened uh, all the time. They happened in the cafeteria and they happened in the uh, mail room and they happened, I mean, so on the Rockefeller side of the campus, I felt very, very much supported. Um, on the Cornell side of the campus, I think things now are much, much different for the better than they were when my generation went through the program. So I alluded to this earlier. Now you have a tri-institutional program with three equal partners in an enterprise that they all agree upon the curriculum and the shape and the what have you. And I would imagine that students now feel just as supported on the Cornell side as they did on the Rockefeller side. Yeah, and that's certainly uh, what we're going for here. I think part of the project of uh, especially this podcast is to um, make students and alumni and applicants feel as if their subjective experiences matter, um, especially when it comes to the unique challenges of the multi-institutional approach. And I think you can do that only when you have three equivalent partners who have a seat at the table, and you certainly have that now. Um, when I went through, uh, was was very different. There was a Cornell Rockefeller program where you would get your MD at Cornell and your PhD at Rockefeller, and there was a Cornell Cornell program where you would get your MD and your PhD at Cornell. 
and they were separate application processes, separate faculties for the two MD-PhD programs, both housed in that same square yardage of, of East 68th Street. Mm -hmm. And um, there were many, particularly basic science faculty at Cornell, who resented the fact that some of us chose to go to a program where we would get our PhD at Rockefeller rather than at Cornell. And I think while we were in the first two years of medical school, my generation felt that. Um, we there was just a negativity in and that's why I think my guess is that this triumvirate of institutions came about in part to um, to uh, get around that difficulty of the very early years um, and I, I you know I participated in the in the um, uh, the alumni retreat a couple of years ago, where we were on the uh, on the ship going to St. John, um, and I did not sense any of that difficulty from the students now, and I think that's because now Cornell and Rockefeller and uh, Sloan Kettering are considered to be three equal partners in a unified entity. How would you characterize your relationship to the program now? You mentioned that you went on retreats before. What is your relationship uh, looking back as an alum? Um, I remain in contact with many people that, um, both with people that are still at either Cornell or Rockefeller faculty. Um, uh, I should say, I guess I'll date myself by saying this, but Dr. Anderson had just become a new assistant professor having finished a postdoc and he gave wow. us some of our lectures. Um, uh, so um, I was the, the first woman accepted into the program. This was, you know, a long time ago. I finished the program in 81. So. Um, I am still in touch with many, many, many of the faculty, both at Rockefeller and at Cornell, and with a few at Sloan Kettering as, as well. Um, and I'm also uh, in touch from time to time with people with whom I uh, was a student. And I feel like I have a network of colleagues around the country with whom I have a shared experience. and. Um, you know, there's a group of us who uh, graduated from Tony Cerami's lab at around the same time who are in touch on a regular basis. You mentioned that you were the first woman, um, among the first women of the program. Did you, how would you characterize that experience? Did you encounter any barriers or any even like soft sort of cultural expectations, that sort of thing, especially, you know, as someone who chose to go into pediatrics? Yeah, no, I, I certainly in the program I did not sense that I was treated any differently than the men in the program. Uh, there certainly were at Rockefeller women who were PhD students, and at Cornell there certainly were other women in the medical school class long before I got here. And the only thing that was unique for me was that I was in this combined program, but I, I think people were very, very comfortable 
um, with there being a woman MD PhD student. I, I do. You mentioned the notion of choosing uh, pediatrics and and of doing pediatric neurology. It's very interesting. There were a few faculty who said to me, how could you go into pediatrics? I mean, you'll be giving camp checkups and immunizations and what kind of research are you going to do in pediatrics? Kids are always healthy. There's nothing wrong with them. And, and um, there was a very wonderful uh, physician uh, at Cornell. Uh, he was a, an adult rheumatologist named Martin Gardy with whom I became very, very friendly. And he took me aside one time and he said, you know, I've overheard people talking to you about how you shouldn't go into pediatrics because it's not interesting and there are no challenges and kids never get sick. He said, you know why they're saying that? They're saying that because they are terrified of children. Because children <laughs> just call it like they see it. And if you have the stomach for somebody who's going to be absolutely dead up, straight, honest with you, no matter what they think of you, then you should go for it. That's and really I, great. I always I remembered that. that. He was like, don't let them tell you that they, they're just afraid to do this because they don't want some kid looking at them and telling them what they won't admit about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. I love that. The, the program is a... It's a wonderful, it was a wonderful program when I went through it, and I think it's only gotten better and better and better as the years have gone on. Um, I think the thing that was the most amazing to me, and we used to joke about, um, you know, the higher, the academic hierarchy in the program, was the students were at the very top of the hierarchy, and then came the full professors. Um, you know, I, I just always had the sense that if I could come up with an idea, then I could pursue it. I, I just had such extraordinary intellectual freedom in a way that I know more structured, more rigid institutions just don't allow you to do. And it really is, has paved the way for a career that I forged at the interface among fields. And I don't think there's anything more exciting than that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shore, for joining us. It's my pleasure. That was another episode of Try iPod, the MD-PhD admissions podcast.